it sounds like the audience, and I know this audience well, is really good at going from zero to 60 and staying in high performance and overproduction and over overworking. But you you don't get faster, stronger, or better without refilling the tank. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with the wonderful Jill Miller, who is an incredible author and wellness expert. She is the mastermind behind two groundbreaking books, Body by Breath and The Role Model. Uh, without sounding too sycophantic in this, the work that Jill has done has become a key resource in everything I do. And you'll hear me implore you to get the book and that's exactly what I'm doing get body by breath it's fantastic insight into how to introduce body and um, sorry breath work into your life the website that Jill mentions at the end of this which is for if you're basically looking to be able to get this book in the EU and you're struggling to do so is blackwells.co.uk and without further ado here is the wonderful Jill Miller Jill, welcome to the show. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you uh, for writing Body by Breath. It's like so quickly become such a key reference. And if you look over just there, you'll see it in my, it's like at the top of the pile, oh, ready man. to draw as a reference point because like, I love it. And it's, um, it, I found it such a, a useful, um, useful resource to have in my life, both for my clients and for myself. So like, first of all, thank you massively for writing such a, such an important resource for me. Thank you for receiving the the work inside of it. You know, writing a book is is like birthing a child. You just don't know who the the book will become once mm-hmm. it's touched, once it's invited into homes, once it um, is trying to make meaning for other people. And so, just the fact that it's at the top of your shelf um, as a quick grab and it's a heavy grab, um, is, is so moving for me as an author. And, um, it's very, very gratifying to see that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No, my absolute pleasure. Um, and I mean it a hundred percent sincerely, it must be an interesting process putting down something into, in, in a world where you kind of Instagram posts are never seen again after 24 hours and social media just goes and then putting something physically out there where the words will be maybe not scrutinized, but passed through the lens of so many people. That must be a kind mm-hmm. of um, a, a daunting step or a, a, That's a, a correct, considered that would, step. Yes, that would be a correct analysis. Like it is absolutely terrifying to recognize that first of all that's 480 pages we cut about 360 pages one year ago right about now so there were actually amazing testimonial stories um, from people whose lives have been transformed by applying this method and my uh publishers said we got to get rid of all the testimonials we saved two there's actually two in there um the foreword and then there is a uh, one of the testimonials about long COVID, one of or a COVID actually, COVID slash long COVID, um, because I just felt it was just way too relevant and important of a of a topic, and it was coming from a clinician's experience. I was like, let's please let's keep that in. But um, the the to illuminate your question, you know, Instagram is short form, relatively short form, and now now we have threads, which is even shorter form. You know, I don't think in short, I think in epochs, (laughs) (laughs) I think in like thousand year intervals. So, um, a book is long form thinking, trying to thread multiple themes coherently Mm -hmm. for 
the attention of a reader or a group of readers or what have you. And you just wonder in the, you know, with the salience of Instagram, <laughs> um, if people will have the attention span to mm-hmm. want to dive in and, and, you know, books are suffering as a, as a, as a whole. I mean, they've gone digital and I mean, that's a whole other, you know, experience uh, my book is digital. It's on Kindle. I don't have a Kindle. I'm I'm a I'm a textbook person. I love big, heavy, unwieldy, hard to find textbooks. So I just haven't gone to the Kindle yet. I'd like to. I keep saying I'm going to get the Kindle so I can actually see what my book looks like. Um, but I'm very I'm very gratified by the number of folks like yourself, especially um, you know coaches, practitioners, um, and clinicians who are still very very comfortable making their way through paper. Um, to be able to process, you know, their own learning. And, but I did make a book that walks off the page also. I mean, I understand how uh, interactive learning is, is very, very helpful for most bodies. Like we're not all just visual learners. We are also kinesthetic learners. We're also auditory learners. And so there are a lot of QR codes in the book to help um, on-ramp and off people, off-ramp people. So if you're reading a page and like, oh my God, this is like really heady. I'm like, let's get into our bodies now. Here's a QR code here. Let's practice these concepts so that they mean something to you. And then you can get back to the, to the reading again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was, I was going to say that, um, I, I really enjoyed that element of it too. The fact that it was practical and the fact that I can use it as, um, without sounding too arrogant someone who's fairly well educated in this domain and still learn a, an absolute ton from it um but still be have that practical element too it's a really nice blend so yeah nailed it um can you describe the journey that you took to get to a point where you're like okay i'm going to dedicate however many years of writing out like thousands of hours like because there's it's such a commitment it's so daunting like we said there must come a point where it's like Oh man, I've got to got to do this. Tim Ferriss said something like, "In like you got to, the only reason to write a book is if it's more painful not to write it." Um, so, like, what was the point where you decided to go? Okay, this is becoming a thing. Oh, I love that quote. Yeah, this was this is one of those things that just eats you up alive. It's all I think about. It is obviously a massive obsession of mine. And just to frame for the folks, like, what are you guys even talking about? We're the book Body by Breath. The the science and practice of physical and emotional resilience is a body-based book that takes into account the impact that breathing has on multiple systems of your body. Um, and it's not a nose to lungs tour of breathing. It's very much um, inclusive of lots of different interesting um, topics. So the book Elements of the book were written over 20 years ago. Um, the formal book writing started eight years before publishing. I, I signed the contract with Victory Belt, my publisher, while I was pregnant with my almost seven-year-old so um, son. So it was about an eight-year journey from contract signing to publication. And that eight years was... Uh, extremely difficult for me to to get everything together. I had a course manual for a course I taught called the 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 breath and bliss immersion, and I also had a course manual for another course I taught called the core integration immersion. And the book represents kind of a mashup of some of the elements that were in those course manuals. But when I started researching my, I guess my thesis. 
uh, I started getting pulled in a lot of different and novel directions and knew that I had to uh, be able to very concretely uh, isolate certain the certain threads that I wanted to. So it wasn't just like, it wasn't simple. Let's put it that way. I also, during that eight-year time frame, had a total hip replacement. I also had my second child and book writing while raising an infant, toddler, et cetera, plus having a total hip replacement um, and already having another toddler was impossible while also running my business. Um, so I had a significant number of writer's block moments within that eight years. And then the pandemic hit. When the pandemic hit, we had to pivot our business because there were so many obstacles to finishing a book about resiliency. <laughs> Just uh, irony is not lost on me that I'm trying to put this book out about resiliency while I'm succumbing to um, so many challenges in my, in my, my personal and professional life. Um, and what happened was early on in the pandemic, one of the pub, one of the folks who works for the publisher, Glenn Cordoza, who was also instrumental in getting, helping me with my first book, The Role Model, uh, with the same publisher, Victory Belt. He gave me a call one day and I'm already six years past due on the deadline of the book. And he's like, hey, how's it going? How's book writing going? And I just basically fall to my, my knees, start crying and say, I don't know a path forward. I don't know how to finish it. Um, I don't I don't know what to do. I'm so stuck. And he's like, let's hash out a plan. And so he helped me hash out a plan and I was able to get back on board and make this thing what it is today. Right. So I needed I needed a life raft, um, and that's what he did. He threw out a, a he threw out a little tugboat, and I was able to row myself back to shore. Pretty amazing. Well, and I I, I feel like that's one of the things that very much comes through, um, which is the fact that it's you're not the equivalent of I don't know um, Jocko Willink, who seems to have a very kind of um, like this kind of ingrained pattern of like this is who i am and like it's unwavering of like this resilience you like from your story that you tell at the beginning of the book um it's 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 clear that yeah, you've had to work on this you've had to develop these tools yourself and that's why i found it so applicable for me and then for my clients too absolutely i mean my the generation story of this book is healing via the body using uh some of the incredible nuanced mechanics of breathing to be able to self-regulate, to be able to adjust autonomic state and ride with my anxiety instead of become destroyed and enveloped and decimated by it. The story that really begins the journey of this work is that in, in my very young, young years, age 11, 12, 13, I was anorexic and would you know starve and I was orthorexic. I overexercised and had no idea what was uh, driving me towards these behaviors. Although at the time, I was checking out books from the library about anorexia, trying to understand what what I was doing. But I, I still didn't understand all the forces. You know, looking back as a fifty one year old, I very much understand what dynamics were at play in the different households that I lived in at the time. Um. But it was in college that I started to dive into my tissue in a way that provided me answers and provided me healing. 
Um, do you want me to tell that the story of? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's a okay. really nice place to kind of to frame the rest of the conversation. Yes. So uh, by the time I reached college, I was no longer anorexic, but I it my eating disorder had converted to bulimia. So I started to binge and purge, um, and this was oh so intensely ritualistic for me, and I absolutely couldn't stop. I mean, once I started to feel the urges to eat the things I wanted to eat. It was literally an A to B and B to C and C to D and D to E, E to F, Mm -hmm. F to G, H to I toilet. It was so uncontrollable and so full of of shame and guilt and highs and lows, all the stuff. Um, I was a sophomore in college and my roommate and I used to go to these Pilates classes together. I was in the dance department. I was in the performance studies department. I got to do all the dance classes and she was pre-med and um, pre-med doesn't really get access to the dance classes, but I, I knew a, I knew a loophole and she could get in. And so she took Pilates with me and she would always complain about being sore. And I was never sore. Like I did all this stuff and I was never sore, but I knew the reason I was never sore was because I couldn't feel my abs. I had no sensation in my, in my core. Um, it was like a black hole. And I knew that it was connected to the fact that I was binging and purging. I knew that the bulimia was part of that vacancy in my center. And so I was doing work study outside of the school at a yoga studio at the time. I was also studying massage at the time, by the way. And I confessed to this yoga teacher that I couldn't feel my abs. And I thought that it was connected to the fact that I was also bulimic. So I was asking for help. I was coming to healing arts. Um, when I felt, I guess that I trusted a teacher, I'd, I'd drop a hint to, tr- you know, just like somebody help me, please. And she said, well, if you can't feel your abs, you should lay belly down on this prop. And she handed me a, a hamburger bun shaped beanbag that was full of of sand. And this was a tool they used in the Iyengar community at the time, or they still do. It's a prop that I think is for headstands. I don't quite understand how it works, but she said, lay your belly upon it and breathe, just breathe. And so I'd never done that before. And so I did, I laid belly down on this very hard sandbag and I started to feel more than anyone would ever want to feel. I started to feel absolute ache, agony, pain, um, what I now know is visceral pain, but the feeling, the experience of feeling that pain clicked something in my brain. And I also started to feel, I started to have feelings and I started to emote. I started to cry. I started to feel the experience that I had created in my body through the binging and purging. My organs were finally speaking to me about their pain and I was finally in a place where I could listen and process. And I knew that that I was onto something here. Like I knew that this was a key for my healing. And so I, every morning I would wake up very disciplined. I'd roll up a hand towel and I'd wrap it into like a honey bun shape and I'd move it around my abdomen and I'd breathe and process. And this was what helped end the cycle of binging and purging. This is the beginning of me moving away from all of the self-hatred that I had and all of the fear of my body, the distrust of my body, and this is a distrust of the messages of my body and move me towards where I, where I am today and where I am now. 
Um, and we can analyze so many things about that and what those things are, but that that is that is the onset of this this body by breath. Yeah, beautiful. And thank you for sharing that as well. Um, yeah. It, it, yeah, definitely takes you on the journey with you. So there's one thing I want to, before we go into the kind of the physiological side and the emotional side, there's one thing I want to touch on to like kind of get um, buy-in from the audience because there'll be so many people who are listening to this who are kind of like, hard charges there that's driven personality Mm -hmm. who is trying to maximize every moment and they're trying to become ultimately efficient and they're um, probably running a coaching service or a business or they've got some sort of online business going they want to train hard they want to have the best relationship possible and i know that there's like that's the majority of the audience those kind of very driven people and then we kind of logically know or we kind of we've heard that breath work is a fantastic idea but like where do the work like why should we care about things like our diaphragms like vagus nerves like Mm -hmm. polyvagal theory like why like what's the the buy-in like what's like why why should we care about that well it sounds like the audience and i know this audience well is really good at going from zero to 60 and staying in high performance and overproduction and over overworking, but you you don't get faster, stronger, or better without refilling the tank. Do you? Can you go from? You can go from zero to sixty flawlessly. You're just so greased for that. But can you go from sixty to zero without falling apart, without crashing? So for a lot of people going into downregulation or parasympathetic zones is intolerable. The endurance for resilience isn't just go, go, go. The endurance for resilience is being able to have just as much ability to endure stages of profound physiological relaxation as it is to be able to endure profound stages of physiological upregulation. And what I find in a lot of the quote unquote type A folks that I come across is they are managing symptoms by sublimating them, by writing over them, by um, band-aiding over them, but not necessarily addressing the the ability to amplify, let's use some other term, amplify parasympathetic values in their body. So um, many people who are um, living in high performance uh, achievement driven high stress zones um maybe running from something like i was until they encounter a, a breakdown and often an injury is what will finally stop them from that constancy of attack get what you want go 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 so um Uh, One of the things I found really interesting decades ago, so I came across this information decades ago, and I always had it in the back of my mind, this, there's this thing called relaxation-induced anxiety. So relaxation-induced anxiety is a, it's not in the DSM, but it's a phenomenon that is, according to a couple of researchers, may affect up to 63% of people. Um, think about how averse so many bodies are to meditation. I mean, when you talk to meditators, you're like, wow, 
that's amazing. They sound so, that just sounds so amazing. But, but the, the adherence to meditation is actually a very small segment of the population. Meditation for many people, the thought of being in stillness for gobs of time is so discomfortable and discomforting to, to consider. And then when they do try meditating, um, that's when the pain arises. That's when panic sets in. That's when they may have um, nerve rushes or, um, or, or indeed the monkey mind that shows up in the context of, of meditation. And so there are many people that have profound pain arise when their body starts to go into a parasympathetic state. I wrote Body by Breath for that gigantic segment of population that finds stillness threatening. Um, this is explained really well by the polyvagal theory. Um, but what I what I offer in Body by Breath are four major tools that can help bodies, uh, whether they are they love meditating or whether they're like meditation averse. And the four tools are breathe, roll, move, and then non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra. And that really that fourth one, non-sleep deep rest or yoga nidra really only arises after there is a coherent um, ability in the body to be able to tolerate this breathe, move, roll concept to help turn down the sympathetic overdrive and help arise the parasympathetic dominant state, a tolerable parasympathetic dominant state that you don't want to flee or fly away from. Interesting. So I've noticed this, like I've, I've been um, suggesting clients try non-sleep deep rest and like kind of um, you're finding certain videos for them and, and that kind of thing. Um, but I have noticed there's, there's some people that are just like, man, that's not for me. That is totally. not my, um, like, and it is that the, the exact concept you're talking about there. Where would you start with, with these people? Oh, I love these people. Like these people are my family. <laughs> You know, probably was me. Like, luckily, I got into yoga nidra and on sleep deep rest as a teenager. And for me, it's always been like, oh, the balm. It is the balm for me. Like, sometimes I will ask the teachers I've trained, can you just yoga nidra me? Because I am flying off the handle right now. And I want you to talk me through a nidra. So, um, so first of all, let's let's like cut yoga nidra out of the conversation because that is a stillness-based meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, but these other tools, uh, one of the things I talk about, oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about. You did ask about, you asked about everything in one question. You asked about the diaphragm. and the <laughs> That's the way I do. Like, I, I don't ask simple questions. I ask a, so I a widely varying question. <laughs> so um, regarding regarding uh, relaxation induced anxiety, like why, how those folks might be able to attenuate their stress response so that they feel pleasantry, they feel um, a sense of calm arising rather than freak out or fear arising. If a body has some level of stimulation that entertains different areas of the brain, then it can safely distract them from this downslope of relaxation response. And um, the things that can do that are breath work. Now, by the way, 
Breathing can also induce anxiety in many people, paradoxically. So that also sometimes we have to actually, okay, let's move breathing out of the off the thing. Now we're left with roll and move. So let's go into the roll and move. Because by the way, when you tell some people, just take a deep breath. <laughs> that is like slapping them in the face. It's such an insult mm-hmm. and it will actually make them even more aroused. And you know that because you teach breath work. So you see, um, I mean, if people are coming to you for breath work, they're probably, they've already bought in, but the people that have heard that breath work can help. And then they just try to like watch their breath and they start to, their brain starts to spin and they start to um, get highly anxious. For them, breath work needs to be compounded with these other elements that I really specialize in. So um, the rolling includes self-myofascial release. So the rolling is using pressure against different areas of the body that are known for arousing the relaxation response. So in body by breath, I break down three different zones of respiration. We can get into those zones of respiration as a, as another question later, but within the zones of respiration, which include um, the head, neck, and face shoulder, they also include the thorax, the rib cage area, and then the stuff below the rib cage between pelvis and rib cage. So we have these different zones that govern respiration, but if we can induce pressure into into very specific locations within the the trunk and the axis, you can actually downshift your autonomic nervous system. You can uh, arouse the vagus, you can downshift the sympathetic and use your breath as a tool against the pressure that's being given. So what I'm specifically speaking about is I have this one tool called the gorgeous ball. I'm holding it up because you're seeing me, I'm sure you know the gorgeous ball. It's an inflated, grippy, hollow ball that has a lot of gush, a lot of squish to it, and also a lot of stick to it. And so if you lay this, or you rest your body, just like my teacher coached me to lay down upon a, basically a concrete sandbag on my guts. We no longer do that. Uh, we use something that's compliant, that's very tissue friendly, um, and Uh, all systems of tissue friendly so that you can get some feedback about where your body is breathing. Um, And then because you have this physical feedback of the tool, it entertains your brain a bit. So you're getting your, you're shifting the breath patterns, but your breath is not going to be quite so self-conscious because you actually have something to push and pull against by using a tool. And so that can be a really helpful tool for folks who have, um, relaxation-induced anxiety or breath-induced anxiety, because now we have something that we can gently wrestle with in in a way that ultimately can flip the switch and then we enter into a relaxation response um, and then some other glorious things can happen there. So the rolling often includes movement or motions. So for example, um, you can lay on your side, have the cordless ball in the side of your rib cage, And you can start to breathe against the ball, but you can also start to uh, gently undulate your spine. So I actually call these the axial rock. So you can make little tiny undulations like a seahorse would make. And there's just enough of a little bit going on that that slow, gentle motion, those oscillations of the head nodding, the sacrum nodding, induce sort of a a, a cranial sacral dominant um, activity of the body also, which also helps to promote the relaxation response. What are the mistakes people make here? I'm guessing um, 
seeking the kind of the physical pain because they think it has to be some sort of um i don't know the most intense massage that i've ever had that kind of feeling um using the wrong tools um time to make like what how do people mess this up oh everything you just said so uh rule number one it doesn't have to hurt to work rule number two less can be way more so if we're used to having feeling like feeling to to think we're doing something, um, that's something that needs to be uh, really rearranged. And so one of the ways I explain that, explain it in the book, is through uh, a chapter on the fashion, the sensing systems that breaks down proprioception and interoception. So proprioception is our body's knowledge of its of itself in space or movement. So you know where your elbow is right now. You can probably just close your eyes and you can, oh yeah, I know how much my elbow is bent, Mm -hmm. right? Or I know how much it's straight and I know where it is relative to the side or front of my body or the back of my body. You're sitting here talking to me. I doubt your elbow's behind you right now. I could predict (laughs) that it's probably (laughs) alongside. Right. Um, and then interoception is our body's ability to physiologically assess itself. I call it physiological listening or subtle sensing. So our interoception travels to through, through a different pathway in the spine, the lateral thalamic pathway, and goes to the insula and a number of other emotional centers of the brain. So our proprioception mostly going to our somatosensory cortex and our interoception, our more refined physiological sensing, going to other brainstem as well as insula, uh, periaqueductal gray, and so on. So when we are um, stimulating ourselves in a tender, uh, slow, using our breathing and other thing pathways, um, we're getting some inputs to proprioception and many inputs to interoception. The interoception stuff isn't always going to be like, I feel things. It's going to be, I have feelings, things. And uh, one of the themes of the book is my body thinks and feels. And I try to um, bring people into their feeling body rather than overthinking their way through their body, but to allow your, your body to have a chance to voice its felt experience of itself. And one of the interesting things about the respiratory diaphragm is it is almost devoid of proprioceptors. So it has about, I think, seven, and they're in the crora, they're in the tail. But the the whole of the diaphragm, this odd misshapen dome that lines the lower six ribs and is is a floor for your lungs and heart and is a ceiling for your organs, um, you know, like I said, you can tell me where your elbow is, but right now you you really can't tell me where your diaphragm is. I mean, you know where it is because I've just described the location, but you can't pinpoint how many centimeters it has descended or how many centimeters it has ascended because it is devoid of feeling. Um, thank goodness. Because if you felt every one of your 22,000 breaths all day, every day, you'd go mad. Um, even if you're highly interoceptively gifted, the only time you're really feeling the location of your diaphragm, most likely is when you have spasms of the diaphragm, also known as the hiccups. You can, you can like kind of see it, you know, pulsating inside of the ribs, doing that rhythmical, bizarre, bizarre thing. And so, um, helping your 
high stress, highly motivated clients to want to get to know their diaphragm involves meeting the neighbors of the diaphragm. And they are not met through aggression. They are not met through bullying. They are not met through what I call ball dozing through your body. It is a subtle creep, like trying to sneak up on an ancient octopus hiding inside an an undersea cave and going to the octopus for the wisdom. It sounds so corny, but your, your diaphragm is hidden for a reason. And so we have to really respect that and uh, move ourselves there in a very conscientious, slow way. Sure, you can do huff and puff breathing. You can do all sorts of rapid, accelerated breathing um, to try to get clarity. And, And I think that's important too. One should do breathing on all scales. In body by breath, I mostly focus on parasympathetic attuned respiration and also this this sort of hunt for the diaphragm and its fascial relationships to all other structures. And then what that means about your structure and what that means about your ability to at will flip the stress switches. Mm, Beautiful. Just a quick favor to ask my friends, if you could head to wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a very kind review, that will not only help my ego virtually explode, but it will help people just like you find the podcast too and hopefully help them to their next level i um there's so many places that i want to take that one of them is i think an important point to double down on so i come from previous military background i've done endurance races and all those kind of things where i've pushed my body to a point where it is painful and Mm. i've learned to also lean into the discomfort of work and the kind of this is difficult okay so find the difficulty because there's probably value and growth in there so the the feeling of it it doesn't have to hurt to work it's like a um it it comes as a an an obvious lesson but one that's hard to embody too so i just really wanted to like double down on that um, and probably go into why that's the case. Mm. Oh, I really feel for you, Tom. I mean, I know I got grounded if I got bees. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, I graduated number one in my class out of, you know, a thousand people in high school. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to college, I had full blown eating disorder, you know, bulimia, Mm -hmm. the whole bit and, and had to, find my way back. Look, I still have those tendencies. I still want to just like go, 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 go blinders on. Um, And I have to force myself to go into what I call the five P's of the parasympathetic nervous system to downshift, restore, find my way um, and face my fears instead of just running with them at full speed. Um, especially if that's been your your training and your conditioning. So it's very, very complex. I'm not saying any of this is like, oh, you just you can just do this. When you just do this, you will actually start to feel some of what you're feeling might be immediately aversion. Um, like, oh, this isn't for me. I don't like this slow movement. I don't, I don't like, and that's valuable. That is hurting to working. Do you know what I mean? Feeling those negative feelings about the dislike of it is information. Um, I remember, you know, I studied yoga for decades before I found my way out of yoga. Um, so this is a whole other longer story. Um, but one of their, one of the precepts in the, the yogic, 
um, philosophies, and I don't have the Sanskrit anymore, so I'm paraphrasing, but is, you know, look at what your aver aversions are because there is gold there, right? So, so for you, it, it's like, great. I see unpleasantness there. Um, that, that, it, but it's not like the kind of pain of, of, of grit of like, you know, fatiguing muscles, it, it, it will be fatiguing because you're going to unwind and unroll all of the tension that has been propelling you forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that comes with, honestly, it comes with nausea. It comes with tears. Um, it comes with, with processing, um, the slowdown. So, you know, the, the, the nervous system is very interesting. I have like one thousandth of an understanding of the nervous system in general. I'm not a neurologist. I'm, I'm a fascia person, but I can talk to you about the different sensory neurons in the fascial tissue and let you know that at different pressure gradients, at different angles and at different depths, um, we can arouse information from these sensory neurons to our brain. Um, and the, 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 again, the, this common experience of it has to hurt to work or no pain, no gain doesn't apply when we're trying to improve the cellular and fluid environment of our fascial tissues. And so um, the, some, some tissues respond to, to tender, tender stroking touch. I mean, you have all these sensory receptors in your skin that respond to licking and stroke. Uh, even at a certain rate. So when we stroke the skin, and right now you see I'm, I'm doing about, oh goodness, what is the pace? It's um, four seconds per one and a half centimeters, I believe is, and that that is the touch of how you're stroking a baby, is the, the pace that arouses um, the tactile C fibers and actually improves immune response. Now, if I go at a deeper depth and I start to actually move the fatty tissue, and I start to create a little bit of, I feel a little bit of a skin lock, but I also feel this interesting um, stretch deep to my skin. Then I enter into the superficial fascia zone. In the superficial fascia zone, there are abundant Ruffini endings. Now, Ruffini endings are sensory neurons that respond to shear forces. So that is an attraction force, but I don't need to even go very deep to get this traction force. I'm getting this traction force just by pressing in, um, like maybe this is the weight of uh, like a half a pound of pressure and then shifting my finger. You can't see me doing this mm -hmm. um, if we're not really videoing or maybe we are, um, but it's just press in and then and then move, move the tissue to the side. So these Ruffini endings respond to shear pressure. And when they are excited in this manner, um, they do two things for the brain. One, they give the brain a sense of place. So it's a proprioceptive um, sensory neuron, but they also decrease sympathetic tone. So just this light pressure, I can decrease sympathetic tone in the muscles locally to that um, because of the feedback loop of the the sensory to motor relay there. And then I can explore that at different depths and I can find um, other sensory neurons, Puccini corpuscles, um, muscle spindles, Golgi tendons. And then the, the zillions, I'll say zillions, it's not the correct term, but the, there's 250 million sensory neurons in your fascial tissues. And most of the, these are unclassified free nerve endings. 
they don't necessarily know what all of the sensory neurons are doing um, because there aren't tests for them. Um, but please note that your, your fascial tissues are also a cell estuary. Um, you have abundant different types of cells that live in your fascial tissues throughout your body, including the, the resident cells of the fibroblasts that produce the collagen and elastin. Uh, another newly discovered cell called the fascocyte. The fascocytes are the ones that spurt out hyaluronan. That's the grease that allows your fascial tissues to move. Or sometimes if they're, you know, if they're pissed off, they'll spurt out too much grease. And that too much grease ends up creating stickiness and stiffness and creating agglomerations. And the more you just try to roll against an agglomerated tissue, you arouse an entire cascade of inflammation. Some of that inflammation may be beneficial, but if you're really trying to like go for the hurt, you're probably creating more hurt, more wounding. And then the cycle will repeat itself. The fibroblast will come in and they'll say, oh man, I got to stabilize this area. I'm going to add more collagen, more elastin, and it's going to increase the stiffness, continue to increase the stiffness over time. And so you're just losing movement over time. You're not gaining movement. So these slower processes, the less can be way more, doesn't have to hurt to work are oftentimes the thing that restores the, the the fluff of the environment, the loft of the environment, instead of um, creating even more glue, even more stiffness. So I hope that is helpful to inspire you and some of your, your colleagues, or not call your listeners, to think, well, I wonder if I ap apply a tender touch ball rather than a hard ball. Um, I wonder if I apply... Uh, gentle pressure rather than hard pressure, if that is going to light up parts of my brain that are just so used to being bypassed. Like I want to use all of my brain. I want to use all the parts of my body and not continue to disavow the tender parts of me. I love the way you use the reframe of kind of, well, this is still exploring discomfort just in a different kind of way that you're used to, because that really kind of gets that, that part of you go, okay, I can still pretend to be this tough version of me, um, but I can still get it. And actually um, you, um, you're good friends or you, you've previously been good friends with Kelly Starrett, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, I've seen, yeah. I've been following Kelly for ages and that's how I first kind of um, discovered your work and I've seen the shift in the way that he's um, he's approaching his soft tissue work and I think that that like there's a distinctive point when he seems to become um, more infected by your work in a positive way infected is probably the wrong word there um, like contagion. And, yeah, yeah contagious in the most positive <laughs> way possible um, and yeah you, you can see that coming through so like even like I think people used to think that that was just smash yourself as hard as possible, but that's developed too. And that's really nice to, to see. Well, I love, I mean, Kelly is my brother, Juliet, his wife. I mean, I've a long relationship and Kelly understands his audience. He understands his demographic yeah. and we all have to use our lingo to try to reach the ears and eyes and tissues of the people we're communicating to. I think I came from the yoga space. I came from the mind-body space, which um, is more used to kind of that yummy feeling, you know, like that's, that's, you'll hear people say, oh, it's so yummy, right? And in the CrossFit space, it's like smash, beast, burn, mm -hmm. annihilate, you know? And so there's, they're just different lingo camps, but I mean, ultimately Kelly and I, 
are trying to reach the most people that we possibly yeah. can and empower them to be their own first line of self-care healthcare because so much can be taken care of on your own without the, the dependence of a clinician to constantly treat you or to tell you what you're feeling or experiencing. If you can be your own diagnostician through self-knowledge and you can get that self-knowledge through rolling, it's just, it's just incredible. The empowerment that gives you when you're going in to meet with a clinician who, you know, you might be dealing with some very serious stuff, but there are so many things that you can do on your own. And so Kelly and I understand that collaborative mission and we know who our quote unquote audiences are. Majority of people also are a big portion of the people that work with me are also people in a lot of pain. I mean, his people too are in a lot of pain. And ultimately you've got to figure out, each individual has to figure out their own pain pressure threshold and being able to attenuate their responses to pain, stretch, pressure, and all of that in terms of applying um, the application as, as best practice for them. So I, I try so many different things with, with my clients, with my students, um, but I do use soft tools. Uh, the evidence on soft tools is, for me, compelling enough to stick with soft tools on a general basis. If if I'm in a space where there are nothing but hard tools, I know how to attenuate a person's relationship to gravity so that they're not um, inducing uh, too much traction on a joint or are going to create even further irritation or discomfort or displacement. So I think, you know, I mean, I love to talk as a technician about these, about the tools and the application. Um, but just, just so you know, we, we both, I think we both, I'm speaking for Kelly and, and myself. I, you know, I, I think I know him well enough to say it. Like we are driven by many of the same um, instincts to just try yeah. to help people help themselves. Yeah. You can see that. You can understand see that. You spoke earlier about the five P's. Do you mind yeah. going through those one by one? Actually, let's start off with them. Um, why they're important and what they're used for. And then if we go through them one by one quickly about like, okay, how do we apply these? Okay. Uh, we still haven't talked about the diaphragm. That yes. That okay. Just, I just want to put that on the mm. table. Okay. We can come back to the diaphragm. Okay. Or which, which would you rather go for first? The diaphragm or the five piece? Um, well, maybe we can talk about the zones of respiration. Great. Cool. As it relates to the diaphragm. Yep. I think that's a really good frame. Yep. So the book... And I, I hinted at this earlier, the book outlines three zones of respiration and the three zones of respiration are, are very simple. I think to get a understanding of basic respiratory mechanics, um, but they also give you insight into where you might want to first focus on your own self-myofascial release or self-massage work. So the zones of respiration are as follows. I already mentioned that the diaphragm lives inside the lower six ribs. Diaphragm also has these two tails that attach to the lumbar spine. They're called crora. So the, the diaphragm's uh, range of attachment is extremely global in the, in the torso. In quiet breathing or in calm breathing, your diaphragm will contract downwards. So it's in its dome shape. And when the body is in its calmest state, the diaphragm contracts downward and everything below the diaphragm, and that's your waist, your belly, your low back, your pelvic floor should expand a bit. 
I call this zone one or zone one breathing. And zone one breathing, we're really focused on the stuff below the rib cage and um, feeling the experience of this elasticity of the gut area swelling on inhale and then deflating on exhale. So we want to have a well-moving zone one. Sometimes we don't have a well-moving zone one um, because we maybe have scar tissue there from a C-section or an intra-abdominal uh, surgery, low back surgery, pelvic surgery, um, or maybe we wear really tight clothing, or maybe we just pull it in all the time because we want to look thin. And so we're holding, we're holding tension in our transversus abdominals to try to pull it in. That's a very common habit. Um, so zone one breathing is our most parasympathetic style of breathing. And we go into zone two. Zone two is the thorax, it's the rib cage. So in zone two, our diaphragm collaborates with the intercostals to create an upward rotation on inhale. You see the, the bones of the rib cage swelling up and open like bony fish gills. And then on exhale, they'll settle back down. And so we want to have a really well-moving zone two, especially if we need to brace our zone one for athletic output or for um, moving a, moving a, a sofa across the floor, right? You, you want to have a braced zone one if you're lifting a barbell. I mean, you don't want your lumbar spine and sacroiliac joints to just get pulled apart because you're not bracing well. So zone two is a really important room for breathing um, that allows us to really control our movement, especially our athletic output. And um, when we're in zone two, we're more sympathetic. So we say that zone two breathing is sympathetic zone of, of excitement, energy, um, and so on. But if you only breathe zone two, because some of the aforementioned zone one stuff is happening for you, like you want to look thin all the time, or you've got a, a gigantic scar from a, you know, a, a kidney transplant or, you know, partial liver removal or gallbladder surgery. Um, if we're chronically breathing zone two, we'll often deflect the breathing even higher than zone two into zone three. And zone three breathing is breathing that occurs in the, the most accessory muscles of respiration, which are head, neck, jaw, upper shoulder muscles. And you'll see zone three breathing when somebody goes into a, a gasp or fright or even delight. And usually a zone three breath is accompanied by an open jaw. So often it's a mouth breath and it's a very quick flood of air into the, the upper most zone of the, of the lung lobes. Um, and gives us a, it's, by the way, this is in collaboration with uh, a flood of adrenaline and cortisol to the system. This is our HPA axis going into a big leap, big escalation, um, but it's not a tenable long-term breathing strategy. Um, because if we're breathing mostly in our jaw, neck, and shoulders, we're going to end up with a lot of neck and jaw pain. It's just not sustainable. My mother's asthmatic. Both my grandmothers died from uh, COPD or emphysema related complications. And um, it's just deleterious for the health of so many systems of the body, of course, including your lungs. So we want to really work at being more of a balance between zone one, zone two breathers for the majority of our days and nights. And of course, at night, we definitely want to be a zone one breather, not a zone two um, type breather. Mm -hmm. So that's that's kind of a basic outline of the zones of respiration. And, and I've heard from a lot of different practitioners that's been very helpful for them to use that model in terms of creating programming um, for their clients. And it really does help people, give people command of their wind instrument 
Like you can literally see where the stresses build up in the system. Um, the book focuses on rollouts in each of these zones and also rollouts that actually apply pressure, mechanical pressure to the vagus nerve, which also when we, when it's done correctly should create a very wonderful drop in the heart rate and a slowing down of the respiratory rate and enter you into deep calm. So the zones of respiration are very helpful to, to, to locate and to learn. And that does help to leapfrog us into the five P's of parasympathetic nervous system. Perfect. Unless you have a question you're, about- You're doing the hosting for me. This is fantastic. So talk to me about the five P's. I'm going to sit back. Do you have any questions and... about the zones of respiration? <laughs> I know. I, I, I want to get to the five P's because I think that's really nice. And um, yeah, it, yeah, it, it's super applicable. Um, yeah. And people can really take that and apply that and kind of, and, and really, um, I found huge improvement from it. So I think we can apply that to, to others. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah. The five P's are the big takeaway from the book. They're so important. I, I outlined the, the beginning of the book. And in the middle of the book, because it really is the programming concept. And I think that if you or any of your the coaches that listen to you um, can even get three of the five Ps um, into some of the practice, practices that they uh, offer to their clients, their clients will, will experience a very big shift in allowing their parasympathetic nervous system uh, to become more facile and strengthen its ability to have its rule and role in the body. So the five P's are one, the first P is perspective. Perspective is all about mindset. And so that is a psychological perspective that allows you to be a, a, a gracious host to the embodiment experience that the rest of the P's will offer. And also I just heard on uh, Andrew Huberman's podcast, I love Huberman podcast. You and I uh, both. It's fantastic. I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too, but he just did an entire episode on mindset. And I was like, oh my God, this is one of my five Ps. Thank you for this gift, Andrew. Um, so it was really great. But what it is, is a top-down hosting opportunity. And in the book, I have more than two dozen of these mindsets written out for you. But the one I work with now, the one that has been helping me as I go on this book tour and deal with, you know, the, the intensity of ratcheting up my life to this next level of next level author is all of me is welcome here. Hmm. All of me is welcome here. That helps me welcome my anxiety body when I'm having interviews like this um, or knowing that I just dropped my kid off. He just had surgery yesterday. Uh, he had four teeth removed. He's at school. I know he's playing basketball when he shouldn't. Um, but all of me is welcome here. I'm not going to just tamp down the fact that I am, I feel uneasy because we're having this interaction. Like the more I continue to punish myself for having, for anxiety being a part of my body, the more it it will surprise me and take over. So all of me is welcome here. The good parts, the parts that I'm less comfortable with, right? Um, but some other suggestions, uh, like during the pandemic, my one of my, my son culpas, or excuse me, my mindset that I worked with was, I am a safe place. I am a safe place. And that really helped me with my kids. You know, because I was homeschooling them as we all were in those initial uh, months. So you've got to find the mindset the perspective that 
for you is a bit aspirational for your spirit, is a bit aspirational for how you want to be behaving in in the world. So there's lots of there's lots of ways you can frame them, and they're they're all over the book. Um, oh, here's one that's helpful. I embody my body. I embody my body. Like nobody else can embody. Body. So we've got the first P is perspective. The second P is place. In order for your parasympathetic nervous system to come online, your body has to feel that the place is safe. It's a place that brings you peace. Now, there's not always going to be a sanctuary available to you. Uh, so sometimes you have to imagine or imagineer that the place is safe, even when it is unsteady, even when you're in turbulence on the airplane. Um, I work with a lot of people who have fled from uh, horrible geopolitical crises, refugees, and so on. Um, they'd never feel safe in their body. So sometimes that is not always an attainable thing, uh, but some of the other P's can help with it. So number one is perspective. Number two is place. If you have a safe place in your home, um, your bathroom or wherever, your bed, wherever it is, find your safe place um, and make it so. The third P is position. In terms of allowing your parasympathetic nervous system to show up for you, the easiest way to get the relaxation response is to recline. So get grounded, get close to the floor or recline yourself. And if you really want to maximize parasympathetic dominance, give yourself a gentle slope. So you even raise your pelvis higher than the heart, higher than the head. Um, like I put my, my pelvis on a gorgeous ball or on a bolster or on a yoga block or on a couple of body by breath books, which are very thick so that you have this gentle slope in your body. And this gentle slope initiates what's known as the baroreceptor reflex and the baroreceptor reflex in short shrift is a vagal response, um, to the, the amount of blood, blood flooding the carotid arteries in the side of your neck. Your, your brain does not want more blood than it needs. And so when those pressure sensors in the side of your neck send, sense that too much blood is coming its way, there's a quick feedback loop with the brainstem and the vagus nerve. And the vagus will tell the heart rate to slow down. It'll tell the breath pace to slow down. And so you get free relaxation response by reclining or nice. even better by creating a gentle slope. So we've got perspective, place, position. The fourth P, pace of breath. So now we come to the breath. Wow, it took a while just to get to the yeah. breath, right? These things can all happen at the same time, by the way, but I'm isolating them. So the pace of breath, ultimately slow breathing and breathing that expands the duration of exhale relative to inhale. So in general, breaths that take a longer phase of exhalation compared to inhalation are more relaxing. Now, there are some other novel breath strategies that can flip that around, but for the just general sauce, make your exhales longer than your inhales. And I will add, since now you all know the three zones of respiration, make sure that the, that you're illuminating zones one and two, you're doing that abdominal mm -hmm. thoracic stuff, not the head, neck and face breathing, right? We're not sucking air through our mouth um, and using our neck muscles to get air in. So we've got four P's perspective, place, position, pace of breath, the fifth P palpation. Palpation has to do with the pressure. There's a sixth P of the different role model balls that um, are throughout the book or different soft self-myofascial release tools that can influence your body's position relative to some of these great pressure zones that illuminate 
uh, parasympathetic dominant uh, arousals based on the pressure. And those are outlined in the book. Thank you so much. Super, super beneficial. Um, I have, I think, three questions out of what, 17 to 20. Um, <laughs> say, Let me you, give we've, you a few got... more. Oh, um, so actually, shorter. I, I've got one. Um, I'll say this. That is a fantastic point. Um, that's that's good because there's so much depth that we've been through. And I think that's exactly what we're looking for here. We're looking for depth and we're looking for applicability. Uh, sorry, applicability. And that's exactly what you provide. So thank you so much. Um, there's a couple of questions um, on a very, very selfish level. Yay, <laughs> First one of these is um, how and when should we use arousal breathing? Oh, a great question. So um, I do have one, I have a couple of arousal breaths in there and I do have one uh, hyperventilation breathing exercise. It also happens to be the only exercise with a half a page of warnings ahead of it. So that those should be taken very seriously. Um, As you know, um, uh, it could be the difference between life and death for some people. So it's just absolutely um, heart shattering to hear that for some people, breath practice ends up being, um, uh, fatal. So I, which is, you know, I'm here on the other end of the spectrum. I don't teach that mode of breathing. Um, I teach this recuperative recovery based work. Arousal breathing can be very helpful if you are finding that you are extremely low energy, but you need to be productive. Um, I think it's really helpful for me when I'm in the car and I start to, to drift off. Um, for me, sitting stillness can make me go to sleep. So um, if I'm not playing loud music and singing, if I'm not slapping my leg, sometimes I'll do arousal breathing to just um, adjust the circuit while I'm breathing. So it's for when you need to make sure that you are attentive and conscious. And those can also be life or death situations. Nice. And when should we absolutely stay clear of arousal breathing? And I can I can put a little caveat on because I can that's more your space. That's more your space. I can um read your uh your caveats in the book and your your um explanations in the book of um when we shouldn't use it. Yeah, I think I think a lot of a lot of people who are in the uh intense training space, they're already getting arousal breathing mm. by doing hit or doing um rucks or uh heavy lifts they're already getting arousal breathing um as a byproduct of intense training and so i think the recovery based breathing the relaxation response breathing is what's missing in the overall breath diet and so that would be my response to that i think maybe if you're being if you're mm-hmm. bearing witness to your breathing while you're working out you're probably already doing arousal breathing and you may not need to isolate it and train it separately beautiful beautiful uh, where can people find out a little bit more about uh, about you? Where can people buy your book? Like I got it from Amazon, so I'm assuming that, that most people can. But where's the best place to to purchase your book? Yes, get it from Amazon. I know that it is also on Black Black. Ugh, what is the? There's a international retailer. Black. Oh, please, please show up. Oh boy. Sorry, I can put it in. Some people in, in, in the EU are having a hard time getting it on Amazon because their Amazon doesn't sell it. But maybe you can put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll somebody. put it in the show notes. I'll, um, I'll stick it in the intro. 
I'll find it in my uh, in my inbox where oh, that sorry. that yeah, the intro after Zoom. Amazon Worldwide, Barnes and Noble for my all my people in the U.S. You know, I've seen it on Target, Walmart. Like I see it everywhere. It's published by um, Penguin Random House. So really, where wherever people carry Pen- Penguin Random House, they can always get Body by Breath as well as the role model. And then um, my website's tuneupfitness.com. We uh, I, I have a Class, new classes every week at an, in an online classroom called Move, Breathe, Roll. So if you're interested in lots and lots of, of accessible online classes that detail much of what Tom and I've talked about, but also how to help your shoulder, how to help your foot, how to help your hip, um, lots of classes covering that. And then there are specialty programs. You mentioned my friend um, Kelly Starrett. We have a program on my website that's called Treat While You Train. We've also got a program with the fascia um, the fascia kingpin, uh, Tom Myers called rolling along the anatomy trains. Also my friend, um, Katie Bowman of uh, nutritious movement. She and I have a program called walking well. And then I just released a, a hit program called rolling to hit with my friend, Doc Jen Fabroni. And all these live on our, our platform. And then I, I teach online classes, excuse me. I teach online, uh, courses in body by breath. I also teach in person, uh, body by breath. So you can find all that on the website as well as role model. And lots of upcoming events, so check it out. Not in the UK, but maybe next summer. Okay, I'll, I'll hold you to that. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. We just got—I just got invited by Spain, so I'm like, well, let's make it all happen. Yeah, it's only a short hop over the pond from there. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time.